Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And welcome to all of our new listeners who've joined us in the past couple of weeks. And um, we hope that everyone enjoyed the Oscars, which kind of feels like a long time ago, even though it was only 10 days or so. Um, What did you think of the ceremony? And do you have a favourite win? Um, I thought that the ceremony had some good and bad qualities um the the not showing clips from all of the movies was a bad decision uh and of of course um you know i we're definitely i'm definitely not the first to bring this up but the uh the way they chose to end it by announcing best picture before the two lead acting categories was a huge mistake and uh, just a ridiculous misstep um but i liked that they didn't play anybody off i liked that everybody got to say their piece and uh give their full speeches so that aspect of it i did like um favorite winner uh, i would have to say probably thomas vinterberg uh acceptance of the best international feature film oscar for another round um which yeah. I think deserves all of its plaudits, and I think he gave a very, um, a very emotional and <clears throat> very good acceptance speech for that Oscar. Yeah, because he hadn't really brought it up. Like he'd brought it up in passing before, but he hadn't made a point of of the um the tragedy of sort of uh, speaking about it publicly. Um, so it was it was definitely a moment on the night. Um. But I, I mean, in terms of the order of the categories, it, it's to assume that Nomadland is going to win is probably correct. But what if it hadn't? Like that moment would have been, you know, relegated to half an hour before the close, which seems really strange. Um, so it feels like they just they, they use the order based on how close it was going to be between the competitors. I really liked the Ma Rainey win for makeup. Um, mm. I didn't realize that that was the first time any an African American person's won for makeup, so that was a pleasant surprise, and I think that was completely deserving as well. Definitely. Did you want to mention the the two distant strangers controversy, which you <laughs> uh, called in our um, winners' prediction episode? That's right. Yeah the the. Um, shall we say eerie similarities that it shares with a uh, four-year-old short film called Groundhog Day for a Black Man which um, depicts the exact same premise but as I mentioned in our predictions episode played much more overtly for black comedy rather than playing at drama and in the um, in the time since our prediction episode, it seems like a lot of other people have noticed it, and the creator of the original video, Groundhog Day for a Black Man, released a video of her own in which she um, details the kind of flagrant path of plagiarism that Two Distant Strangers took, and I don't know if that video came out before or after the or our episode or the academy awards i only saw it uh, a couple of days ago myself it will be interesting to see if um the oscars would disqualify after the fact if there was to be some kind of lawsuit um Mm. i don't know what the laws are around plagiarism uh, in terms of films but 
it seems like she's definitely got a case. Yeah, for sure. Maybe they'll make a copy of the Oscar and give it to her as well. <laughs> okay, um, so what are we talking about for this week's episode? This is um, this is all you're doing. Yeah, sorry about this um, to you and our <laughs> listeners, because this is not going to be a very positive episode. Um, yeah, we made a bet in our predictions episode um, that whoever got the f- less predictions correct, we would have to do their nightmare category for this episode. And I put up Best Picture 1930-31, uh, the lineup of the fourth Academy Awards, because it is just dismal, absolutely dire lineup of films made worse by the many better films that were released this year and were f- for some reason excluded from this lineup um which is east lynn the front page skippy trader horn and the winner cimarron now these are just films that i would only recommend to people i was trying to alienate <laughs> So, really, enemy. yeah, exactly. If I just wanted somebody out of my life, I would say, you know what? Watch Trader Horn. It's you know, it holds up pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think any of these movies are above like a B minus, like a three star level for me. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's pretty bad considering this is supposed to be the the superlative category of the year. These nominees. To not even have like a four-star film in the bunch, I think is pretty dire. Yeah, and coming off of the third Academy Awards, which had a re- some relatively strong films in there. I mean, the winner, All Quiet on the Western Front, is a great early Hollywood, early talkie. And for all of its problems, I like The Divorcee and I like The Love Parade. Um, and The Big House is not bad either. Disraeli is forgettable. Um, but it's a fairly strong lineup considering the early Academy Awards kind of level of quality. But then the fourth Academy Award just throws it all out. Okay, so first we've got East Lynn. And I suppose we need to disclose that the final 12 minutes of this film is not available, I believe. Not available online. Um, the uh, pr- The print that's available at UCLA... Uh, does contain the complete film and I did see that uh, on a visit to Los Angeles about five years ago um, I was able to view the complete film but you know if if they didn't have that those last 12 minutes it wouldn't be a great tragedy it just kind of follows in the same uh, the same vein as the rest of the film although it kind of ups the melodrama quite a bit okay because this is uh, adapted from a novel from 1861 uh, by Ellen Wood. And what's interesting is that the original novel, by the sounds of it, seems a lot less sympathetic to its uh, central female character than this film does. Because I think you could yeah. kind of call this film a woman's picture in certain ways. Um, it does attempt to sympathise with her, um, the main character, what as as a later adaptation of this work is is that why we're getting a bit more sympathy because we're not no longer in the Victorian era 
and the filmmakers realise that the original novel goes too far in chastising uh, women. Yeah, I I rather think so. And I don't think that a film made with the premise of the original would have been acceptable by audiences because she, from what I can see of the original um, novel, she is pretty bad, um, depicted as pretty uh, amoral and pretty kind of just unsympathetic. And to kind of make that more palatable to audiences, I think they had to soften her character quite a bit and make her uh, more of a heroine and a misunderstood um, misunderstood woman mother. Yeah, because it's, it's a bit of, I think the book is sort of an, along the similar lines as Vanity Fair, um, which is published a little bit before that with Becky Sharp as just this sort of harlot basically conning the men in her life and... Um, it's it's good to see that this does have some sort of social commentary on that era and the fact that women don't have control over their own lives and don't have any rights over their children or their own finances, for instance. Because um, you do have this sort of this Daphne du Maurier Rebecca premise where this um, Isabella, is a character's name, played by Anne Harding, she sort of comes to live with her husband and then she's thrown into the family home and basically treated worse than muck. Um, mm-hmm. So in this, it's it's not a problem of her own doing, really, although she definitely could have handled the situation with Levison better, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, she doesn't yeah she makes some very questionable and contrived decisions uh to further the plot although did did you find it weird that we don't actually see the um scene in her bedroom so we so it's almost like the director is saying you know maybe they did sleep together maybe she is a harlot we don't know the rest of the film is very sympathetic towards her, so it kind of is weird to me that he would that they would leave that ambiguity when there's really no need to. Like the rest of the film isn't a, you know, wondering did she or didn't she? Will he forgive her even if she did? She really didn't. You know that seems to be what they're trying to tell us. So why not show us everything? Uh, it seemed weird to shroud it in mystery like that. Yeah, in terms of the messaging, it's going completely against the original novel, but it seems like it still wants to keep the plot points and it still wants to maintain some sort of faithfulness to the book. Um, Mm -hmm. But they did change certain things, like in this she goes blind, whereas in the book I think she's disfigured and then sort of ends up becoming the nanny um, to her own child because they don't recognise her. But as it, you do. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, the film, like the film does have the same problem that I imagine the book does, where it's just such a flagrant brand of melodrama and it really does take over in the, the sort of final third where we get the silly scene of her wandering out alone into the storm and ending up blinding herself. And mm-hmm. it just feels like the, the film's constantly piling on hardships for the character to bear. And it, it ends up feeling really heavy-handed by the end. Um, 
what yep. what actually happens then in the last 12 minutes can you remember uh, i i barely remember um but i know the baby dies um oh no yeah you know couldn't let up at all um and i i honestly don't remember if she dies i think she dies too but i don't know if she dies knowing that the baby died i think she does um because it has that famous line um, that wasn't in the original book, but was added in later stage adaptations, where she says, dead, and never called me mother. Oof. Yeah. Which, um, I didn't know came from this, I only knew it from a Monty Python sketch. So, it's, it's a, it's quite an over-the-top line, but I, you know, um, I guess delivered properly, it could be tragic. What did you think of Van Harding in this, then? Because she... She did. We we do have a question on Harding uh, later on, um, relating to her actual nomination this year, which was for another film. Um, but does she do well here? I think she does the best she can with the material. I mean, she definitely goes big for it, but I think that it's just what the material called for. It's a melodrama, and she kind of had to to sell the, you know contrived um crazy over-the-top things that happen yeah she does kind of remind me a bit of norma shearer i don't know if that's in the way she looks um or just the mannerisms some of them sort of the way she tries to imprint her personality onto the role um seems to be trying to encourage the audience to go with the character in a way that i think if somebody else had played the role we might be even less interested, to be honest, um, because the writing is just that character does seem quite narrow overall. So I think Isabella could be like completely unbearable in this and overwrought. And I think she does sell the independence of the character and sort of the modern forward thinkingness of the character fairly well. So I think I think she held my interest. It's just a film overall is difficult to recommend it's all too much for me mm-hmm. and it um but it it does seem to have been quite influential um in well like i mean the next year helen hayes won best actress for the sin of madeline claudette and the plot of that is a very similar um a fallen woman trying to reconnect with her baby um and then there is kind of the Rebecca-esque elements of it, a new bride arriving to a a, a cold, unwelcoming household. There, there's a lot of plot elements in here that would get used again and again uh, in coming years. Yeah. I think um, also what was difficult to watch about it, I think, like which might be a common theme in some of these movies, is is the sound as well, um, mm. which is really dodgy. And uh, certain, like, it's difficult to hear some of the dialogue at times, which doesn't help. Yeah. But this is the, this is, I mean, I think we talked about this when we did the episode with Zeta. It's, they're still learning about the, the sound technology and as such, it's, you're sort of straining your ear at times. Um, 
and it's a little bit difficult to immerse yourself in the movie properly. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of a. Um, it does take you out of the movie when it's you have that kind of scratchy recording or the drop in sound level and all that. Yeah, they were definitely still figuring it out in this time. Okay, um, so let's move on to the front page, um, which is uh, or- originally it was a play um, with written by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur, and this has been remade by Billy Wilder in the 70s. Uh, Howard Hawks made His Girl Friday based on it, which is probably how it's best known. Um, I think it's fair to say that this kind of version from Lewis Milestone is maybe a little overlooked overall compared to those other films. It doesn't really get much of a mention. How does it? How do you think it compares um, I, I don't think it has a lot of what made those other films good, especially His Girl Friday. It's too, I mean, it, it's very obviously adapted from a play and they don't seem very interested in disguising that fact. Um, I'm not saying that you have to disguise the fact, but this film in particular seems like it could have been benefited a bit from some more imaginative changes of scenery. Um, to me, yeah, the, the occasional cutaways to other places just to show, Hey, we have other sets just wasn't enough. Um, but I will say that, you know, it's kind of a proto screwball comedy. I think that a lot of the dialogue, I mean, it, we talked about Ben Hecht, uh, when we talked about screenplay 46, he can write, great dialogue and his dialogue is pretty good in this um it works well i think as an early example of what would become a screwball comedy yeah i don't he wasn't in charge of this screenplay i don't think right i think his was the original play um but it's i mean mm-hmm. why would you change it <laughs> it's it, it's definitely seems to be a, a play that's dialogue heavy in the first place so i doubt they changed much of what was originally there but I think you'd be, I mean, we'd be remiss not to expect some funny quips and ziggy one-liners from something uh, written by Ben Hecht, you know. I think the film definitely doesn't disappoint in that way. There's this really funny early scene where the porter's talking about the murderer having this dual personality uh, because of the shape of his head, which I just thought was really funny. And like... He's like deadly serious explaining this to all the guys in the office and they're just kind of giving them the, their sandwich order. Um, mm-hmm. And that was that was kind of really amusing. And I, I did like everything with Hildy's mother-in-law and the whole kidnap plot. I did think that was amusing too, um, where she comes back and and Burns is sort of like, well, who is this woman? Is she just a, is she a drunken joyrider or something? <laughs> and like the... She just looks so incredulous. So that those kind of things are fun, but I did think overall it was very frantic and there was too much going on. Yeah, I agree. It's it's like two short films stuck together almost. Like the the first half is just kind of very frantic and very like jumping from here to there. We see one long monologue or one conversation between the reporters about one thing it's just all kind of setting things up it's a very takes a very long time to set itself up and then suddenly halfway through 
uh, the murderer escapes, and then it kicks into that story. So it seemed like two short films that just kind of got scrunched together, um, and it never really settled into any kind of a rhythm to me, except for like it, maybe in the final part, it finally settled down and just played the story out. Yeah, that that's when it got better for me, and that's when Adolf Menju gets better as well. Uh, yeah, because. I think really before that it, he was sort of in a few scenes, but there wasn't really a focus to it. And when it shifts to that focus in the last half hour, it gets better before that. It just feels too random, like you said. And I did sort of think, well, actually there's quite a serious through line to this movie, you know, of this guy who's condemned to death, who's probably innocent You'll get a bit about that, and then suddenly the mayor comes in, and you think, "Well, what's going on? <laughs> Where's the mayor come from?" Um, and I do think some of the plot points strain credibility, uh, especially with the why does he give him the gun in the first place? And yeah, um, yeah. why I didn't get why that woman jumped out the window. What was going on? <laughs> yeah, no, she was just yeah another kind of melodramatic touch that comes out of nowhere and takes forever to happen like she has to back across the whole set to get to the window and then she has to climb up the whole time just saying no no don't come near me it kind of reminded me of the scene in singing in the rain where he just keeps saying i love you i love you i love you i love you to fill in the time it kind of seemed like that like they forgot they needed dialogue for this long movement and so they just kind of let it, let her fill it with whatever. That was a weird moment. Yeah, there are a few sort of occasions like that where you get a, a heightened hysterical moment and you sort of wonder, where's that come from? Um, I don't think it properly does the legwork um, at certain times, but I did quite enjoy it. Uh, and I think it's one of the better movies in this in this category but i just think it could have been handled with a bit more finesse like Mm -hmm. in the first episode we talked about five star final where you've got edward g robinson and it's sort of a similar story set around the newspaper industry but edward g robinson really takes hold of that movie and makes it watchable and i don't think there's ever a moment in this movie where I thought, okay, I'm fully on board with it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. What did you think of the very end with the, the phone call at the end? Is that just a punchline to the movie? Or are we supposed to think that Hildy eventually stays at the paper? I, I think it's a combination of both. Um, I really like it as a punchline. I think it's funny. Um, and I think that Adolf Menju really delivers it really well. Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think you could interpret it as he's going to drag him back and eventually keep him there. Or you could just think of it as a as just a tag. I mean, I was kind of like thinking when the wife turns up at the end and sort of she's beginning to say, oh, no, you can actually stay at the, the newspaper after all. I'll just give in to you. And I'm thinking, no, don't give in. He's treated you terribly. <laughs> Whisk mm-hmm. him off to New York and it's time for a bit of, a bit of your time. You know what I mean? 
Um, yeah. So I was kind of on her side a little bit by the end. Uh, so, but then he, she kind of says, "No, I'm not having it. I'm taking you to New York." So I kind of liked that ending, and yeah. it wasn't as sexist as it could have been. I think that's the best you can say about any of these, except Trader Horn. That's that is as sexist as it could have been. We'll get to that. Okay. Next, we've got Skippy. Um, this is an early screenwriting credit for Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Yep. And it was adapted from a comic book strip, which is not surprising if you watch the movie. Mm-hmm. Because it's very much got that sort of sanitized, for the most part, sanitized feel about the drama um, that does feel kind of junior, although it does have its hard-hitting moments. But in my heart, I kind of liked Skippy for what it was. What did you think? I... I don't know. I mean, I guess it's about as good as um, an adaptation of a peanut butter brand could be. Um, <laughs> it I I don't like it that much. I mean, I think that Jackie Cooper, we talked about him in our first episode about The Champ. Um, I think he's good in that. But in this one, he just came across as kind of annoying um, to me. And it just kind of maybe is better if you know the comic strip like you know these characters in their comic book form so you can be like oh yeah it's that person um and it's kind of got that proto dennis the menace kind of humor but um it does it didn't hang together too well for me even though it had that kind of like that very dark uh overarching plot line um about the dog i wonder if that was in the comic like did these characters have this experience in a comic? Because that is pretty, pretty dark for a children's comic. I think probably yes. <laughs> I think they probably mm. just didn't care back then <laughs> uh, about how how much um, trauma they were inflicting on the readers. Uh, but I, I mean, I really like Jackie Cooper in this. I, I mean, mm. he's not as good as he is in the Champ, but I just. I just think he's such a little street urchin. He's such a little... I mean, now you'd call him a wide boy. You know, he's um, <laughs> he's this proper streetwise kid. I just... I think he's really fun. I like, And he made me laugh at times when... When um, some of the humour in this is funny. But the father's trying to talk to him about sociological juxtaposition. And then, like, Jackie Cooper relays it to his, his little friend... Like almost like he's drunk, like he says, like sociological juxtaposition. <laughs> like it's he's he, like the way he says it, it's just like he just doesn't have a clue what he's saying. He's just trying to, um, you know, say to Suki, you know, uh, that he knows what he's talking about. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I did. I thought he helped, but the story with Norman Torog's um, inducing him to cry is. Uh, <laughs> quite unforgivable i would say yeah and apparently and he held a grudge against him that's his uncle right norman turog is his uncle and he yeah. held a grudge for years maybe the rest of his life he never really forgave his uncle for that uh do you want to tell that story well i think jackie cooper he was required to cry in in much of skippy and norman turog uh 
I think got somebody to take Jackie Cooper's dog uh, behind a wagon and fire a, a blank um, <laughs> to, to sort of fool uh, Jackie Cooper into thinking that he'd actually shot his dog. I mean, that is brutal. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't be laughing, but I'm sorry. That is some hardcore uh, direction. And yeah, you're right. I guess, yeah, the 30s were a different time. They didn't care as much about traumatizing children uh, as they do today. And it, and it is, the dog in the film is is Jackie Cooper's dog, right? The One of them is. I don't know exactly which dog was Jackie Cooper's own dog. Yeah. I mean, it worked. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I believed those tears. Yeah. Yeah, and it is a brutal moment where they they say that the dog has been killed. I, you can kind of see it coming, but um, when they say, oh, no, we've already shot the dog, and I was thinking, oh, no. Um, yeah. And, like, the, the actor who plays Suki, um, there's actually a really sad story about his brother. So Jack, um, Robert Coogan plays Suki, and he's to be honest, he's not very good. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But his brother, um, who was also called Jackie, Jackie Coogan, he was the kid in Charlie Chaplin's uh, The Kid. Mm-hmm. And um he was in a he was in a car crash uh that killed his father and um other members of his family. And in the months that um he was in hospital his mother and her new husband managed to sort of blow all of his money that he'd earned from the Chaplin movie mm. on like fancy cars and stuff. Um, so this led to the California Child Actors Bill, which is also known as the Coogan Act. And um, I think it still exists where the, the it protects a portion of the child actor's earnings. Um, so it can't just be squandered by the parents. But I thought that was kind of, a really sad story um, based on this, this this young child actor's brother but I did I do think um, Chaplin uh, helped him out after that I think he gave him a thousand dollars when he learned what had happened so it's good had a happy ending yeah and he went on to play Uncle Fester in the Adams family so he uh, he had a good career in front of him <laughs> That is slightly random, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, and it's confusing when I was writing about this film and thinking about it because I kept thinking that Jackie Coogan played the lead and I know it's Jackie Cooper, but then Jackie Coogan's brother is in it. So it just the names just keep getting mixed up in my head. I I did laugh quite a few times at this. Like, I think when um, when Suki's given that the pedigree dog with the sheet, um, with all it, it's got all the heritage on it, or you know, of all the the dog's ancestors. And I think Jackie Cooper asks him, or Skippy asks him, "Are they all the dogs?" And he's like, "Oh no, it's not. It's not a dog. It's Bonnie Prince Charlie." Because <laughs> <laughs> someone's named the dog Bonnie Prince Charlie, like this pretentious name, um, which people still do now. I just thought that was really funny, like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. But there was, I mean, the comedy was, the comedy was okay. Um, I just think the the plot has certainly got problems, especially um, to do with the father, the father's role and everything. 
Yeah, and it, it's disturbingly easy for his father to just kind of make up for everything that he did, and it, and it just kind of, you know, slides over it in the film. They're like, oh, it turns out we don't have to leave and everything's fine, and now we have three dogs instead of just one. So thanks, Dr. Skippy, um, or <laughs> whatever his surname is. Uh, and and he's, it's kind of like the end of Mary Poppins, the cold, distant father just has an instant epiphany and is suddenly a great father um, for, for magic reasons. Um, I mean, he does, tr he does try to buy Skippy's love um, with the bicycle. So that's not great. Um, no. But, okay, did did it seem to you that Eloise was a little heartless at the end? Like, she, she was heartbroken and writing poetry about her dog who had died. And then the second Skippy says, I'll give you a bicycle for your new dog, she's just like, yeah, here you go. <laughs> God damn. I did think Eloise was funny overall, but certainly yeah. um yeah a bit i mean there was no soul to her put it that way it was all mm -hmm. just <laughs> but the poetry was kind of funny um that was funny and it was funny too how everybody else just leaves the table just leaving uh skippy's father there listening increasingly <laughs> exasperated as she goes on <laughs> But I like I just don't I don't get why the father because the father walks in on Skippy praying. I how can he possibly know from that all that's gone before? Because what Skippy says is he doesn't say anything specific, like he doesn't say any addresses. How would the father know where to even go? It just it was really really lazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um... I guess he is really good at lateral thinking and can put pieces together in his head that don't exist. But yeah, that's what I meant when this film just kind of slides over it and it's like five minutes to go, we got to have a happy ending. So, you know, not everybody gets a happy ending. Um, that Nubbins kid uh, is in for a very hard life. But Yeah, I think a lot of people are in this film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, ev everybody is. I mean, they're they're not in the best position at the end but you know that at least his father shows he can uh throw a brick and punch out the town bully so he's all right uh is it slight um maybe a slight influence on capra this movie i could see that yeah because capra's heroes tend to solve all problems with you know one well-placed punch and the hero is van and the the villain is vanquished, especially if the hero is played by Gary Cooper. Uh, that's really all he knows how to do. Um, yeah, definite early Capra shades of early Capra. I'm sure he watched this film and thought, "Aha! I know what my career will be." <laughs> I also think, like maybe, the father's role in this is a bit of a Puritan and. There does seem to be a, some sort of trend with this year of a couple of movies sort of trying to suggest that maybe we should move forward from that and um, be a little bit more open-minded about sort of not be so classist. Um, although there's maybe some others that might be 
going back to the past in that way, but um, I'm sp- specifically thinking of Cimarron as well, but there does seem to be some sort of um, movement towards saying maybe we should, maybe welfare is important and, and other things like that. Yeah, I suppose so. Although I'm not sure, I'm not sure Cimarron suggests a great progression. Um, it's it it replaces some outdated values with some pretty bad ones. Yeah, which we'll get onto later. Yeah, but first we got to tackle Traderhorn and Ugh. Yeesh. So we'd, I mean, Chris texted me early in the week and just said with four words trader horn is trash <laughs> <laughs> it is it's, it, it's it hard is. to argue with that to be honest it really is um yeah like i like i said when um sorry but like i said when when we first announced the possibility of this cat category on on twitter um it's it's sexist racist colonialist bilge and watching it again reminding me of so much in it that I hadn't remembered a lot of specifics and everything I did remember just just as bad if not worse than I'd remembered it um and and it's uh you could consider it a snuff film uh because it does depict an actual death uh on camera and who was that who it was a couple of people that died right yeah um well two of the um two of the native guides who were helping with the production of the film one of them uh fell into a river and was uh killed by a crocodile and another was killed by a charging rhino and that latter is they decided, hey, that's exciting. Let's add a cartoonish shriek to that and put it in the film. Uh, and they did. There is a scene later in the film where one of the native uh, tribes people falls into the river and gets killed by a crocodile, but I don't think that that was the actual crocodile death. I think that was staged uh, for the movie. I think it's strange to watch this movie as a sort of... There's a strange... Um marriage between fiction and documentary and it's sort of this this document of colonialism made by apparent colonialists you know um it's a sort of this very strange artifact but i think the exploitative nature with which it's made is just too tough to bear um because visually it is good um, it does look good in terms of its its visuals, but when you learn that in order to film the wildlife, they starve the animals um, to make mm-hmm. them fight each other. I mean, it just adds a tinge of you know bitter distaste. It's hard to it's hard to overlook that when you judging the movie as a whole. Um, I do think it's impressive that they've managed to go on location and create a coherent story, um, given all of the obstacles of being in Africa, etc. Um, but that it's, I mean, there's just too much, there's too much wrong with, with what they've done here. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, like when when you've got the animals fighting, you've got you know Harry Carey piping in, you know, saying well, that that's how it is in the wild. If you're mm-hmm. not trying to get food, you're worried about someone else eating you, which is true. But what you've showed us isn't nature unfolding naturally like a documentary because you've engineered it. You've meddled with uh, the food chain wherever you've gone. So I just think it's constantly undermining itself in that way. It wants to be, it's purporting to be educational, but it's also engineering that. Yeah, especially when you consider that a lot of the lion footage was actually shot in Mexico, um, not Africa, uh, to, and they shot it in Mexico to get around U.S. animal cruelty laws. Um, yeah, it's it's awful in that respect. And yeah, you're right, dishonest. I, I was going to say, I thought you were going to go with they were meddling with the primal forces of nature. Uh, call back to network. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the treatment of the animals. I mean, it's not quite, it's not the worst treatment of animals on film that I've ever seen. Um, I, I have yeah. seen Cannibal Holocaust and it does get worse. Um, I'm not recommending that nobody should watch Cannibal Holocaust, please. Um, but yeah, the animal treatment in this is bad, very bad. Yeah, and it almost seems like the 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 shots of the animals are sort of inserted into the movie when whenever the movie's getting like bogged down or whenever like the plot mm-hmm. seems to be stalling, we seem to get like a five minute clip of some lions, and you're like, well, where's this come from? You know, yep. I think um, I think what happened is while they were filming it they were tended to film it as a silent movie and you know all that the advent of talkies exploded and in hollywood and they sort of then had to rush to add some sound recorded dialogue scenes um towards mm-hmm. the end of the shoot but it does feel like it takes half an hour for any plot to take shape really until they meet that woman and she relays the story of the the kidnapped child or whatever um but it mostly does feel as if they're making the plot up as they go along. Yeah. And and even that, um, they still don't really get that plot going for a while because the bulk of the travelogue scenes where it's just walking around pointing out animals takes place after that. Um, when they go into the bush in search of this uh, girl. And then there's like a 15 minute stretch where it's just pointing out herds of animals and Harry Carey giving random facts about them. Yeah. And you're right. Then they kind of pepper it in whenever things are slowing down. Um, they just kind of throw in some more animals. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, there were some really insidiously racist elements to the story. Yeah. Um, like, why does she, suddenly go with them anyway because they're white because she she fancies a young white trader um because because white people have to help each other (laughs) but she couldn't be more white it felt like rapunzel being rescued from the tower like she had this long blonde hair it was all very aryan yeah and i mean it's it's 
the racism cuts both ways in that because it's also well not only does she act you know as a quote-unquote african tribes woman incredibly racistly like her depiction of the quote-unquote savage jungle queen is just ridiculous um like you can almost hear her wanting to growl like an animal you know to really show how savage she is grr um was she talking gibberish I'm sure she didn't learn a language. Was that yeah. the actual language she was speaking? I don't... I mean, I don't think so. Um, it's lucky for her that and them that apparently every tribe in Africa speaks the same language um, because they're able to... The same guide and she is able to communicate with everyone they meet. <laughs> um, but also then, the mere fact that she's their leader is just an incredibly racist, ridiculous idea. It's like, yes, of course this tribe would take this tiny baby and make her their leader because she's white. Obviously, they would kowtow to a white lady. Um, is not what I'm saying, is what they were saying in the film. Yeah. And it's just yeah. a ridiculous idea. Um, yeah, because there's no other reason for her to be except she has the whip. Like, does nobody else have a whip in this tribe? And apparently, it's a whip that only works on black people. Um, because when they do meet her and the young idiot who's along for the ride with Trader Horn, what's it? he's called Peru. Does he have a real name? They just call him Peru. Um, mm. Gets in her face and says, you know, don't you... The stupid line. Don't you understand? White people have to help each other. And... She whips him across the face and body with it, and he just takes it because apparently it doesn't work on him. Yeah. Um, and, okay, when I first watched this movie, the look that he gets on his face, when I first saw the movie, I interpreted it as kind of like a teacher looking at a child acting up in the room, in the classroom, just kind of like, it's your own time you're wasting, so I'm going to let you, you know, get this out of your system. But watching it again... Did you, I mean, did, how did you interpret it? Because I saw him as, like, angry with her for defying him, but not in, like, a angry, yelling kind of way, but the kind of anger that an abusive husband or partner would have as he's looking at um, this woman who he knows is going to cave. He knows she's going to, you know get her little temper tantrum out, and then he's going to be in charge again. So the look he gives her, and also when they're about to be burned alive, he is not afraid at all. He just keeps looking at her with this look like, okay, get it out of your system, but believe me, you are in trouble. I, that... thought, he was giving it, I thought he was giving her the eye. That's what I thought. I think it, it was like he was trying to entice her. Like, I'm the... I'm the handsome white guy that's come to rescue you. That's the Prince Charming. That's what See, it felt like to me. I don't know. He seemed to do that later. And of course it works because they're both white. They're made for each other, obviously. Um, but early on, no, it totally seemed to me like in a, like this was in a, like an abusive relationship. The husband looking at the wife, just like, you're making me mad now. So you better let up. 
And of course she does. For no reason at all. She's just like, oh, you're right. I remembered I'm white. I better save these two and then yeah. abandon my tribe. And then immediately become a damsel in distress. Yeah, it does feel like it's like he's he's looking at her and he's saying, you won't do this. You know, you, you know you're not supposed to do this. Yeah. Um, which which didn't really make sense. Um, no. I wanted to bring up what is going on with the end. Like, so Peru dies and Trader Horn is visibly upset for maybe like a millisecond and then gets over it. But then yeah. we see a vision of him in the clouds at the end. Yeah. yeah. Is that supposed to be suggest like this is... This was the message all along. I I just was baffled by that decision. Yeah, it was weird. Um, yeah, he dies, and you're right, he has that brief moment, and then we get the vision of him. And are we, yeah, are we supposed to believe that after all the, like, you know, calling him a black ape and a mm. black, monkey. you know, monster and mon- yeah. Blah, monkey? Yeah. Yeah, at the end of it, he's like, one of you monkeys get the bags. Like, God damn, man, can you not let up for a second? Um, but yeah, after calling him all those racist names, he has a vision of him at the end and is like, I will, I'll carry on for you, old friend, kind of thing. Um, very, very it's weird. Very weird. I will say uh, the real Trader Horn was, in spite of probably being pretty racist, was staunchly anti-slavery um, and did campaign against uh slavery in africa although he in his book um he did say that the cannibals were the cannibal tribes did not practice slavery so they were at least um enlightened in that way which is an interesting comparison interesting concession yeah i think um i mean ws van dyke did this who was responsible for a number of movies the oscars loved uh the thin man San Francisco, Naughty Marietta, Marie Antoinette. I do think he sells this as an adventure story, and I do think it's one of the better made films of this group, just on a technical level. But I qualitatively as a movie, I you cannot separate the politics and ethics around this. Like we watched um what was that movie? Embrace of the Serpent which is about mm-hmm. Amazonian tribes, but it's it's hearkening back to an era not much before this. And you sort of get how accurate that movie was in the way that the, everybody looked. And that's what feels weird about this, is that this is a document of the past and something we really, you know, we really need to get over because it, it's, it's pretty ugly. Yeah. And um, I want to mention one more aspect of the racist... Uh, the racism just in the production like not the characters but just the way the film is made the shots and the depictions of the tribes people that they show are filmed and presented exactly the same as when they show animals like just kind of like hey look at what we're showing you know and that is also shown i think in the fact that they depict you know they're fine showing uh, women in the tribes with no tops but when they get to nina the white woman even though she's been raised in this tribe her whole life and would probably not dress any differently she has to be completely covered yeah you know 
because she's a white woman and we have to protect her whatever dignity or whatever yeah yeah so yeah it just the it's shot through i mean i'm okay with films having racist characters if it's not presented in a heroic way but this is like a combination of racist characters and a racist ethic in the production which is just pretty ugly it's yeah it's inseparable to be honest Mm -hmm. but cimarron only nine categories in uh at the fourth academy awards and one of them was best sound recording which was awarded to a studio rather than a specific movie so Cimarron eligible for eight in eight categories, nominated in seven of them. Um, mm-hmm. Thoughts? Uh, I don't know. Um, this film just doesn't have a lot to recommend it. I'm trying to think why it was the first um first film in Oscars history to get so much attention, so many nominations, um, along with A Free Soul this year, was the first to get multiple acting nominations, and it won three Oscars, which at the time was a big deal. Um, mm. It's it's just bad. It's just boring and overlong, and it starts so exciting and then just never matches the excitement of the first minute, which is a pretty sad thing for a two-hour movie. Well, I mean, it starts. Yeah, you're right. It starts and it looks brilliant. I think, like on a, like, the way it's shot, I think it looks good, um, from start to finish. But this novel, um, from the twenties by Edna Ferber, is hearkening back to this this time in America and. Um, transition and all this and I think the the self-importance of the movie becomes a bit too much for me Um, Mm -hmm. I think I think mainly because Yancey as a character is just kind of unbearably pushy person and a very self-righteous person and I didn't Mm -hmm. quite understand how why people were responding positively to him to such an extent because he really does ingratiate himself and imposes himself on the town. You know, he ends up having a role in the church, in, in the courts, and in the in terms of the local paper. He's the editor. So he's, like, taking a grip on this town. Um, yeah. But, but he's also not that noble because he ends up murdering about three people in the movie. And you're kind of thinking, you know, I mean... He's every after every time he kills somebody, he's sort of like, well, I wish I didn't have to do that, but it had to be done. And I'm thinking, well, it didn't really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He murders people, and he just abandons his family on a whim, two or three times. And this is our hero. God, he more like an oligarch, to be honest. Um, yeah. But I mean, I kept I kept trying to, you know, find someone in the film to feel sympathy for, if not him, because he is kind of a a hard character to get behind with all the awfulness. But so I'm like, OK, maybe I'll feel sorry for Sabra or Sabra, however you pronounce Irene Dunn's name. But she's such a racist harridan. <laughs> like, how do you get behind her? Well, I've she's read- awful. 
I've read plot summaries that seem to think it's her story. And I'm, which I did not get at all. I mean, fair enough, she's there at the end. But I I saw it as his story for the vast majority of the movie. Um, yeah. Because really, she's like a passenger on his journey. That's how it feels. So mm-hmm. she's this dutiful wife. And then every so often we get a scene where he's sort of like being a bit more progressive and she's like, you can't do that. You, she's a slut or she, the woman's a <laughs> slut or um, the Native Americans. We can't let our son marry a Native American. So she's almost puritanical and Yancey is sort of coaxing her into moving with the times through sheer stubbornness, but she's very reluctant to do that. She's very reluctant yeah. to to get to his moral high ground, however high that is at the time. Um, so I would have liked the movie to explore her journey a bit more, to be honest. And I didn't really get that at all. I thought it was it was mostly concerned with him. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, when she does finally, um, you know, see that, oh, maybe Native Americans are people, huh? It happens entirely off camera, like in the gap between the last two uh, sequences. And then when she gives that speech at the end, it very much has a vibe of, oh, some of my best friends are Native Americans, rather than actually being um, behind their struggles and behind their advancement. So, yeah, it, uh, to argue that it's her story is a bit of a stretch. Uh, I think it's definitely Yancey who drives the narrative. His actions are what move us forward. Yeah. It's this drags a lot. I, to be positive, I liked Edna May Oliver, um, which I usually like her to be honest. But I thought she was some much needed comic relief. I love, yep. I love when um, the supposed um harlot is is touching the child and she's like you vicious hussy you're not fit to touch a child i just look like that line was just brilliant um so and she's she was really fun to be honest that was much needed but did this really need to be over two hours no uh definitely not um it it has a lot of plot lines that kind of come up and go away and come in and out and it tries to be epic in scope, but it definitely could have trimmed a lot and given more, if it wanted to be two hours, it could have trimmed a lot and expanded more on areas that needed expanding um, rather than just breeze over decades sometimes in the cuts between scenes. Um, and just kind of bring us up to speed by showing us the newspaper and be like, now we're in this year and here's what's going on in the world. And now let's check in on the Kravitz, you know. Yeah. Very badly paced and weird plot lines that come up and go away without particular need or um, relevance. Yeah, and it seems like there's always one bad child and one good child and it's sort of like the daughter takes after the mother and the son takes after the father, um, Mm -hmm. which all feels a bit too convenient. And you get sort of this spoiled young daughter, sort of like this Anne Blythe and Mildred Pierce character um, that just seems to be looking, you know, looking down the nose on everyone. 
Um, and that didn't really go anywhere either. Uh, and the end, why is he in the mine at the end? I just didn't get that. Why is he... <laughs> What's he doing down there? I don't know. <laughs> he just... Yeah, he, he leaves for, what, 20-some years or longer? Um, and then just shows up at a mine right at the end uh, that she happens to be visiting. Uh, it's amazingly convenient that they can die. And, and of course, when he sees her, he doesn't say, oh, hi, or can't believe it's you. He just launches into a platitude before he dies. It's so contrived. What does he say again? I, I was actually thought that was quite a good line, but he's he says this profoundly romantic thing to her at the end. And I'm thinking, well... You've, you've you've abandoned her um and then you've got yourself killed down the mine i just <laughs> yeah i mean if i was her i wouldn't even bother i'd just say to hell with you to be honest well maybe she did i mean it dies right after that i mean it, the film ends right after that so we don't see what she you know if she shakes him off finally <laughs> yeah i mean it does have some moments but I mean, it's probably not the kind of movie that I would be interested in in terms of the subject matter, uh, naturally. But it's the movie's job to make you interested in that. You know, it it really doesn't it really doesn't seem to tell us much about the area or you know what was happening there or what communities were living in the area at the time. It's mm-hmm. I think the story's too personal and it needed to maybe flesh it out a bit more yeah okay so we got through these movies <laughs> yes amazing uh we have some listener questions the first one's from zeta short and she asks how does Anne harding's work in east lynn compare to her performance in holiday and why do you think she was nominated for the latter instead of the former um just because it's a better performance um, I think that in Holiday, she's much more naturalistic, uh, much more kind of inner element. Um, and I, I think it's just a better performance, a more worthy performance of an Oscar nomination. Yeah, they are, they're very different performances. Both, I think, successful in their way. But I think it was nice for Holiday to get a major nomination because it's a really, really great play. And that's a decent adaptation if not as good as the um, George Cooker, Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn one. Daddio asks, uh, he says, Skippy won Best Director, but not Best Picture. What did Cimarron have that Skippy didn't? Um, why do you think the Academy went with this result? Which I guess will, will bring us on to why did Cimarron win this Oscar? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, in Skippy, they shoot a dog, and in Cimarron, they shoot a horse. So maybe they just uh, preferred horse murder. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that. It, it, I had forgotten that it begins with Daisy May tricking um, Yancey by claiming her horse broke its legs and having him shoot it. And he does. And it's like, the horse had to really die? For you to get that, why not just say, oh, I think there's something wrong with my horse. Can you take a look at him? 
or something. <laughs> Why not just, nope, uh, you might as well just kill him. And don't mind me climbing onto your horse while you do that. Um, yeah, that was rough. So, I don't know, maybe that's what the Academy was looking for, for a Best Picture in 1931. I have to say I find it astonishing um, that Wesley Ruggles did not win the Oscar because the film itself the what it has that Skippy doesn't is prestige it's it's the prestige of the novel it's this idea which is what happened with Cavalcade as well um, after this that history historical events are in some way sort of more important than decent stories in this period and um, yeah. and that's what they went with and I'm kind of confused as to why Simron didn't win just because it's it's not exactly like it's a play or anything it's got a lot of outdoor scenes and some technical um, expertise so that for me is a strange decision but I um, I really think it's the it's the idea of importance and also in this period the it wasn't technically called Best Picture, it was called Outstanding Production. Um, and mm-hmm. maybe the production values were what's the grandest film, what's the the film that's most technically impressive. I don't know. That's what I'm that's what I'm thinking is why Skippy didn't win. Yeah. But it certainly doesn't seem like this was close, right? No, probably not. I mean Trader Horn was the top of the box office, so maybe that was the closest to yeah. challenging Cimarron, but I doubt that I doubt it was much of a contest, no. Okay. Snubs for this year. I gather you've got a few. Yeah, like every other film that was released <laughs> in the eligibility period. I mean, you've got a free soul. Uh, which was nominated for Best Director, won Best Actor, was nominated also for Best Actress. Um, That's one. Morocco also got a Best Director nomination and a Best Actress nomination. Um, You had The Public Enemy. You had Little Caesar. City Lights got no nominations at all, which is just inexcusable. Um, Well, I wanted to ask about that. Is this because it's a silent movie? Probably, but yeah. Is, is, is silent movies old hat, you know, in 1931, 1932? Is it? Yeah. I'm just thinking because we got no silent nominations this year. Yeah. No, it must. I mean, I'm sure it was that. Um, but still pretty unforgivable. Pretty. Yeah. Pretty awful. I, I would have liked to have seen Min and Bill nominated. I think that's a really good movie, which Mary Dressler won mm-hmm. Best Actress for. Um, so that seemed to be well liked. Um, it's maybe yeah. a little lighter for this. They seem to have gone quite heavy with this, apart from Skippy. Um, but yeah, yeah, I like that one. But yeah, I mean, if they were going to go for light, they could go with the Royal Family of Broadway, uh, which got Frederick March his first uh, nomination. There was another um, Frederick March movie this year, or during the eligibility period, called Honor Among Lovers with Claudette Colbert, um, which is also not a bad movie. It's not a great movie, but it's better than East Lynn or Trader Horn for sure. Um, So that 
that I would rather see in in the lineup than any of those. Um, and of course, Fritz Lang's M was released in 1931 in Germany, but not That's right, until yeah. 33 in the US. So that was mm-hmm. wouldn't have been eligible, but right. that would certainly be my favorite film from that year. Yeah, it's a very very outstanding film. Uh, any wider observations from the fourth Academy Awards? Um, eh, just one of the worst. Um, and I w- just a brief bit of trivia. Lionel Barrymore mentioned one uh, Best Actor for A Free Soul, and he had been nominated for Best Director for Madame X at the second Academy Awards, so that made him the first person to receive Oscar nominations in two different categories. Well, and um, I have very, well, a free soul, that's a very dramatic performance, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. um, It all goes very, very, it's very big at the end. But Yes. Um, but uh, we have two of the Best Picture nominees this year receiving no other nominations, um, East Lynn and Trader Horn, mm-hmm. uh, which wasn't that uncommon at this stage, was it? I think this happened for a few years at the beginning. Yeah, um, and something we talked about when we did way back in our first episode when we did the fifth uh, Academy Awards when there were eight Best Picture nominations and half of them received no outside nominations, including the winner. Um, so yeah, it was not uncommon, definitely not something you see today. I think the closest we saw a few years ago, Selma, was only nominated for Best Picture and Best Song. Yeah. Um so yeah, definitely probably not something we would ever see happen again. I think um extremely loud incredibly close was that too as well. So, yeah, just that and uh Sido for best supporting actor. Yeah. Okay, do you want to rank these? <laughs> Hi. It's a bit of a race to the bottom here, but um for me uh number 5 Trader Horn uh, less said about it, the better. And we've we've got some. When we asked people to, for their rankings so far, um, I don't think anybody, any of our listeners, have seen Trader Horn, and that's fine. Don't don't worry about. It. Don't knock yourself out to see it. <laughs> uh, number four, Cimarron. Number three, East Lynn. Number two, Skippy, and number one, the front page. Very similar again this week. I have five, I have Cimarron, four, I have Trader Horn, three, East Lynn, two, Skippy, and one, the front page. Although I did consider putting Skippy first, because in my heart, it's probably the film I would watch again of these five. But Mm. my head is telling me the front page has more to offer, really. Yeah. I imagine I would rather rewatch the front page, although I don't have a burning desire to rewatch it or any of these um which hasn't changed from when i originally watched them for my blog which was uh, five or six years ago now yeah and we could have had uh, best picture 2008 which was my choice um but at least we got away with some shorter movies i think the 2008 movies are quite long um so less pain yeah and we didn't have to rewatch the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which uh, may have 
may have been two or three movies worth of pain all rolled into one. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we have a website. It's categoricallyoscars.com. We're on Twitter at categoricallyo. Next week, uh, co-host of the Keep It podcast and fellow Oscars obsessive Louis Vertel joins us to discuss his category choice, which is Best Actress in a Supporting Role of 1966, of which the nominees were Wendy Hiller in A Man for All Seasons, Jocelyn Lagarde in Hawaii, Vivian Merchant in Alfie, Geraldine Page in You're a Big Boy Now, and the winner, Sandy Dennis in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Excited for this? Yeah, this is a, this is a, looks like a pretty good lineup um, based on the films of it that I've seen. And it's a good, uh, a good bridge between the two years because this year Cimarron was nominated for every category that it was eligible for. And the only other film to do that was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which of course we'll be watching for the next one. So it's a nice segue. (laughs) 